0: Welcome to the podcast, the destination for insightful discussions and interviews on the appreciation, conservation, and husbandry of reptiles, with a focus on turtles and tortoises. Now, let's join our team of turtle nerds.
1: Woo! Such an inspiring intro always gets me. Welcome, welcome to uh, the podcast, episode 86. This is a big one for us here. are very excited. We have uh, an, an extremely esteemed guest with us who is known really, really well in herpetology and herpetocultural circles, uh, but is not as well known, I think, in a lot of turtle and tortoise circles. So we're really excited to have him join us to bring uh, some some really uh, in-depth and really impressive uh, biological knowledge uh, with us so that uh, we can all learn something. So we're really excited to have Dr. Zach Loafman with us from West Liberty University. Hello, Doc. Hi, how are you? Can I start by asking, do you no. find it offensive when people call you Doc? No. No?
2: I'm I as feel like,
1: I, f- I feel like it's perfect, right? I'm, I'm, yeah. I know you're cool and laid back. I've heard you speak countless times and now you have a podcast of your own and we'll get into Mm -hmm. that but i always feel like when i call doctors doc it's like a term of endearment for me but also respect because i feel like you earn that shit sorry Mm -hmm. excuse my language you earn that (laughs) stuff (laughs) and and you should you know what i mean you should get the uh
2: you should get respect from that no 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 yeah i I actually like it uh at west liberty it's kind of weird At, at small schools sometimes you don't get that laid back feel with the students that you might get at a big R one school. Um, mm-hmm. So it's nice that in this universe, at least that can be called doc. Cause yeah. Cause
1: you deserve it and you earned it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Thanks <laughs> nice, man. Just
1: saying. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I'm so excited to have you on. Because I've listened to a lot of podcasts where, that you've been on where I've gone back and listened to it two or three times. So, so why don't we start <laughs> off just by letting people know your podcast, uh, no kind of why you started it, how it's going, that sort of thing. And then we can get into more of like your background and stuff. And it's sure. kind of backwards. I hate that. Like, tell us how you got into reptiles as the starting question. Not my favorite. Mm-hmm. So no, I
2: got if you. don't mind.
1: Tell us about the podcast so people can get sure. excited about it.
2: So, uh, my podcast is with uh, my friend, Matt most, um, uh, I love all reptiles and amphibians. I've I've loved them all since I was, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper. So, uh, but in in my my personal favorite group to work with are colubrid snakes. Uh, and given that I'm an educator, uh, the podcast environment to me is kind of like the blending of all my worlds, if that makes sense. Because it you know, you're 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 here talking about something that's very nerdy in a good way. Uh, and uh, I'm, I feel like I'm talking to my people, and I am one of those people. Uh, and so when I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this here in a, here in a moment, but when um, my university generated this zoo science major out of the clear blue sky, and then I was put in charge of it and didn't really have the credentials to be in charge of it, I had to go and find a lot of information for a herpetoculture class I was teaching. And long story short, I was trying to find journal articles because that's my world as an academic. And they they just didn't really exist. Um, And I was looking for like nitty gritty details. And I just, I started walking around my neighborhood because I got fat. I needed to uh, (laughs) listen to something. And I found podcasts and I actually found really a Python radio and uh, started listening to that one. And basically realized that like, I was learning an awful lot about, animal husbandry and, and care and seeing these patterns that kept popping up with, with some guests and seeing how some guests were kind of, you know, pushing the envelope and, and questioning why we did certain things. Um, and so I kind of realized that that was an environment that I would, I liked and, and and podcasts were kind of in this educational space. And then I ended up doing a couple of them and it was really a natural thing for me to do. Um, and then basically uh NPR Morelia Python Network um uh they were adding podcasts left right and center and colubrids colubroid snakes are my jam they've always been my jam they will always be my jam so I thought I could do an NPR for colubrids and I knew Matt um Matt we have similar interests but we are very different in our scope um and he's been in herpetoculture literally for decades I was in it in college, and then I got out, and then I got back in. But I understood, like, classic herpetology, natural history, and Matt also had that background. So I just thought this might actually work. And so pulled the trigger, bought a mic, and now we have a podcast. And it's, I mean, I think people like it. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of the origins of that. But Matt and I love it. It's it is like once every two weeks, I know I'm going to be able to just chill out and talk about snakes, snake keeping with somebody that is just as into this as me, if not more. And I'm going to be doing it with Matt. Matt knows more than I do about this stuff. So it's, it's just been a lot of fun. And I, I don't plan on it stopping anytime soon. <laughs>
1: I think I, I really think it's a cool show. It's a special show. Um, first of all, NPR, for those that don't know. That's the longest running reptile podcast out mm-hmm. to my knowledge with number two being the podcast, the yes. show that you're, <laughs> that you're tuning into right now, which is really cool and something that I'm, that that I'm really proud of, that we're proud of, but mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a great show and and a great now network of shows. Uh, and I, I do t- tune into a lot of them, but yours is my favorite. and It's because of you and it's nothing against Matt, but I think Matt is kind of like who I am on the turtle side, like one trick pony, nothing <laughs> against Matt again, but like <laughs> He's into snakes, it's what he's knowledgeable about, and it's what he speaks to. Whereas you are more, you know, you're a professor, so you you kind of have had experiences kind of lecturing and working with students and kind of, you know, kind of gaining interest out of people that kind of don't have as much knowledge but are really eager to kind of get in and learn. And then also making a lot of like analogies and connections and things like that like in life but also throughout the natural world too so you're not you're you're obviously not just a snake guy you also yeah. i mean there's a crayfish species that's <laughs> named after you like how cool is that yeah and if, i always want to call you lofman but i know it's loafman but i just i well, just it, have to say that so if i say it wrong
2: it's okay it, it we i've been where our family's been saying it wrong forever it's actually lochman <laughs> we, we went to ireland and found out that uh we were lied to and we thought we were German. And then we did a DNA test. One of the 23 and me and like, ah, look at that. We're not. Oh, no. So <laughs> anyway, so yeah, oh, no. I, I don't really care how it's said, but it's all good.
1: <laughs> one of the cool things though, like you guys had Mike Rapley on recently, who I think mm-hmm. a lot of our turtle um, people may not know, but he's someone who's been in the turtle game for a really long time and is really no really well known uh, by some of the people, <coughs> excuse me, who have been, who have been around for a while and um, he contributed to my book actually. And, and he's somebody who who I really uh, enjoy when I have the opportunity to kind of, you know, read something like a post or something or, or converse or whatever. Um, I haven't seen him in person since 2015, but uh, he's also into Colubrids like you guys and you guys had him on the, on the, um, on your show. And I think what's really cool about, colubrids is that there's a lot of commonality between turtles like that. I like Mm -hmm. where they don't really need a lot of supplemental heat and they're terrestrial and they're, they're just different. They need a cool down. So it's not like those really popular snakes or a lot of popular turtles out there. So a lot of the things that I hear you talking about really interest me a lot. So I want to, I want to pick your brain on a couple of those things. If we could just go like topic to topic and just kind of talk about those. Let's do it. Does that sound good? Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Steve, you're here too. Everyone, Steve's here. Steve, you're you're allowed to talk. So don't. don't <laughs> I'll, I'll like poke I'm, in when
0: when 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 there's a, an appropriate moment for sure. <laughs> I know. You, I know
1: you will. I just I don't want to be that guy who's just like talking and talking. No, nope, no worries. All of a sudden, 35 minutes in, people who are listening <laughs> to the audio version are like, "What the hell just happened? Who's that guy?" <laughs> so Steve is here as well, and he's going to pop in. But you know, he always does stuff in the background, so he's a little bit quieter. Uh, okay, so Zach. Yeah talk to me about hormone cascades.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: That's a thing, right?
2: So, that is totally a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so so a lot of reptiles and amphibians that live at in temperate latitudes and if you know, we need to know what the hell that is, if you're in uh, if you're in Ohio, Westford, Northern West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New England, um throughout the Midwest. That's what we call temperate latitude. So basically where you have four seasons, if you, if you, and, and we're not going to talk about what the hell climate change is doing right now, but classically you have, you know, winter, summer, uh, winter, spring, summer, fall. What has happened with the evolutionary process is that reptiles, amphibians have to have a dormancy period during, you know, that, that annual cycle. It's it's a literal requirement because when it drops down like it did here in January to right around zero, if you're a box turtle and decide to go out for a little stroll, you're going to be a turtle sickle. You're dead. Like that's all there is to it. Yep. Yeah. And what a lot of people think is that when reptiles and amphibians go dormant, that they do exactly what that sounds like, that they just basically shut off biologically and that there's nothing happening internally. And in reality, what's happening is Uh, they're, when, when they're getting ready to go into this in the fall, they've gone from summer into fall where they had a lot of light and a little bit of darkness with summer. And then as you go through fall, you're getting more and more and more darkness and less and less and less light. Those, uh, dial cycles is what we call them of light. They, they basically trigger hormones and those hormones are reproductive in origin. And so when we brumate our animals what people don't realize is that you are basically imitating part of it if you just do the temperature cycling but if you don't have the light part in there as well if you're not like dwindling the light as the temperature is coming down um there's there's evidence that the temperature is far more important than the light but to kind of really nail it if you will you need the temperature and the light so um, but what's actually being, what hormones are being cascaded are, um, in females, they're estrogens. So they're basically all the, the female hormones and they're the, the same hormones that human beings that are female have progesterone and estrogen and even testosterone is part of, part of that mix. Uh, and then with the uh, males, it's all androgens, which are things like testosterone. So, uh, but what what you have to have is in order for you to have these um in order for you to get eggs in your animal so we talk about follicles all the time you have to have this cascade happen um with a temperate turtle because if you don't brumate them and you're not imitating wintertime, they're just permanently stuck in late spring summer and they don't even really begin to do the cycling piece until the fall and the winter shows up so you're literally going to have them in a non-reproductive state eternally if you don't ever, you know, drop temps. So that's why we do all the cycling stuff. And with with our podcast, I decided that I was going to do an experiment. If Scientists, what I do. So I was going to go full nerd. And we did that brumation bonanza. And um, I mean, I did, like, I had, while we were recording it, that one was just Matt and I had PowerPoint slides up and, like, My dry erase uh, board was all written up and all that kind of stuff. And what was really interesting, though, is we talked about, you know, the hormone cascades. We talked about how you need to have this cycle. And then a lot of snake people afterwards were like, well, I don't brumate my colubrids and I get eggs. And I started thinking about that. And, you know, they obviously are getting eggs unless they're lying. And the number of people that were telling me they were getting eggs was kind of, Intriguing to me. So this so you know, resulting of the podcast, I actually have a bunch of Florida Kingsnakes. I went off a Kingsnake deep end here. I I did what all hurt people do. I was like, I'm gonna get two. And then 10 days later I had 40. So (laughs) that's a true story. Um but I I took half of them and just kept them in my my office here, actually. And then the other half went in the garage, which gets down to fifty degrees. Um, and sure enough, all the, the um they're Brooks King snakes, if anybody here knows what those are. Uh all of the females that I didn't actually bromate all the way, they've mated and they're they're getting plump. And all the females that I took all the way down to 50 degrees have mated and they're getting plump. So it it, it goes to show that when we have them in captivity, we may be selecting against the need to broomate, because if you think about it, the one you're right. going to get that one-off clutch here and there. And it might be the, the that one animal out in nature that may have been at the narrow end of the bell curve that didn't really need that much of a cycle for her to go. Uh, so
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah, it's been really kind of fun uh, putting that kind of stuff out there. And that's one of the things that's nice about science um, is you can kind of get out of your echo chamber. Because, you know, my echo chamber was... You have to bromate these things. And then I did that and people said, no, you don't. And rather than be like, yes, you do. And I like, you know, got my pitchfork and torch and went to my side. Was like, well, what the hell? Let's just see if you don't. And sure enough, you don't with with these kind of subtropical uh, critters. So
1: Interesting. Yeah.
2: Can I ask a follow-up question? I'll use sure.
1: uh, I'll use Eastern box turtles as an example. And I've heard this a lot from certain rehabbers. Not to say anything wrong about rehabbers at all. Again, I just like to give yep. that disclaimer. But... There's a thought that hibernation or brumation, obviously, those are the same thing. I've heard you explain that before. Yeah. Maybe we can touch on that in a little bit too. But uh, hibernation is a is a stressor yeah. that an animal, like a like a an animal that's been rescued or can't be released because you don't know its origin or whatever, that they don't need to be cooled or hibernated because that's a that's an unnecessary stressor. Mm-hmm. My firm belief is that it's an important part of their biology, yes, and their natural history. So we should do everything we can to replicate it as much as possible. I think the best placement for an eastern box turtle is an an outside pen in a in a northerly climate where they can be cold for six months out of the year and do their thing and and live a natural life. Uh, but there are people who think the opposite. What are your thoughts, just looking at it from from
2: you know fr- from your perspective? Sure. I'm totally on team, cool them down 100%. Um, and, and here's why: even if you're not gonna be brumating the animals, uh, there are so many other aspects of their biology that are dependent on that cool-down warm-up. Uh, their they're way to metabolize food, um, you're gonna shorten the animal's lifespan probably, because if you think about it, these animals that are at temperate latitudes, let's just say three months of the year, they're not active. So that's essentially like a pause button that's being hit three months out of every year. So when the animal is gone, is is four years old, it's essentially spent one of those years in dormancy. And if you just keep them going at full temp, uh, they will burn out. And there's been some studies that have been published that actually show uh, that that happens with some of our temperate animals. You also have a tendency to see um. The stress hormone cortisol will will build up over time. And what's interesting is, while hibernation is absolutely a stressor initially, uh, once they get down to temp and they get to that physiological state associated with rumation, um, the cortisol levels bottom out. And so nice. it's almost like you could think of it as a meditative state. Uh, and you know, we're all about meditation now and you're know, trying to clear yeah, yeah. your mind and all that because well, of the health. Yeah reasons and there's I'm not saying necessarily that they're like zening out in the bottom of the pond but at the same time <laughs> the, the cortisol levels are it's a different type of stress hormone and they need that like you know evolution is a thing it 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 doesn't happen on accident it's selected for and these animals that were able to live at these latitudes this is what they do so my way of approaching their care is we're going to do it so like at the university great example with box girls um, As you all, I'm sure, are blissfully aware, everybody and your mother, when they see a box turtle, seems like they grab it, keep it, and then they don't want it anymore. And we have the reptile collection at West Liberty, and a local university had what they actually referred to as the box turtle garden. Um, They put up a fence, they put in four box turtles, and then, I think it was 20 years later, they had over 20 adults and they were breeding and i'm certain there was inbreeding beyond all belief going on in there um <laughs> and when the university was uh when the guy that was managing it retired they were going to euthanize the turtles uh because the dnr said we can't you can't release them that's not gonna happen um <clears throat> so we took on 10 of those turtles and we have them at the school and we don't have a place to brumate them uh, but we're building a building and and I'm excited because uh, we're going to have a walk-in cooler that's going to get down to 38 degrees. And that's where our turtles are going to go. That's where our fluids cool are going to go. That's where everything that is at this latitude across the planet is going yeah. in that cooler you know, at Thanksgiving. And then it's going to be coming out around the 1st of March. So Very
1: cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Can, can – <laughs> I kind of alluded to it because I've heard you talk about it before, but can you – can you talk about the difference between hibernation and brumation? Because that's a big one where you'll see sure. people kind of chiming in and saying, oh, no, it's, it's called brumation in reptiles, you dummy, yeah. and it's just another excuse for people to argue with each other online
2: it, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's semantics. Um, 100% truth. Reptiles hibernate. Uh, if you say that that turtle's hibernating or that snake is hibernating, you're using the correct term. Um, there was a guy at a university in California who did some studies with lizards. And he basically was able to show that when the animals got down, when their body temperatures got below 50 degrees, basically, they underwent a torpor and their physiology kind of stopped. And then, and they got above 50, 50 degrees, their physiology kicked back on again. And the mechanisms at play appeared to be very different than what mammals and birds do. Mostly mammals do. Um, And so, Basically, the biologist said, reptiles brumate, mammals hibernate, and here's why. But then he later on says, of course, that brumation is a form of hibernation. So uh, the reality of it is, you're both right. Like, it's it's one of those things, you know, in the snake world, we always, people will say poisonous snake, and everybody loses their mind uh, because they're venomous, uh, and there is the, the one genus of poisonous snakes, but um, same deal with the brumation hibernation. It's just... It's just something for someone to get angry about. <laughs>
1: interesting. See,
2: I didn't know there was a genus of poisonous snakes. Interesting. Yeah, yep, like, a, there are. No something new every
1: day. Snakes. There's venomous snakes. Yeah. 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 Right. So there's a,
2: a group of um, they're actually really closely related to garter snakes and water snakes. They're nature interesting. Snakes. And they have these nuchal glands on their neck. And when they get stressed out, they put their head down and they present their neck. To a predator, and they exude this um, toxin onto their neck, and it basically, if you get it in your mm. mouth, a predator gets it in their mouth, makes them regurgitate violently. So,
0: wow, sounds yeah. wonderful,
2: epic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Has it been it tested
2: wonderful. on humans? <laughs> I'm certain somebody's licked it. There's no way. Florida man, right? <laughs> yeah. There's absolutely no way. Oh. Our, our species loves to do stupid things. There had to been someone that was like, you know what? I'm going to put that in my mouth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! Sure. Did you have something else, Steve? So. You look frozen right now. Oh, that, that can't be good. That can't be good. Okay, let's just rock with it and hope that everything's yeah. still working, even though Steve is frozen. Uh, it's going through his computer though, so I don't even. Know oh, cool. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, this is this is awkward. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um i had another one hold on let's talk about the um your research with crayfish i'm really wondering because a lot of them are tied to like riverine situations mm-hmm. and streams and that sort of stuff i wanted to talk about clinal variation is that a word or is it clino? Yeah. clino okay. I never clino I think age. I'm pronouncing that yep. word too. These are words that I learned from reading. So I always <laughs> feel like I'm pronouncing yep. everything wrong. So um, because I'm I'm not a herpetologist. Yeah. So I know Steve was totally smiling, right? When he got frozen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Somebody in the chat was making fun of him. I love it. Um, so is that something with crayfish or am I, am I making? That oh, happen? yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, Could, they're. Yeah. So when i made the jump from herps to crawdads uh the reason why i did that is uh back when i was in grad school uh getting my master's degree which was the when did i graduate 2002 to 2005. um that's when everybody in your mother wanted to be a herpetologist back then the job market yeah. was like crushed and my advisor told me go find something else and so I picked crayfish because they everything I learned with herps, I could apply to them because they're huge. They're not like little itty-bitty things. And there was a huge conservation need for them. And one of the crazy things I never in a million years thought that I was going to do as a scientist, never thought that this was going to (laughs) be my job, is uh, I I inadvertently got into a situation where I was doing surveys. So I would go into a watershed and – collect a crayfish and document what species live there and and do all that. And I would invariably end up finding these animals. And I'd have the book that would say it's species a, and then I'd be looking at it and be like, you're not species a, but you're not in the damn book either. Like what the hell are you? And what I was dealing with was exactly what you're talking about. Clinal variation. So with clinal variation, what that is, is you have the core population of an organism, whatever it is. And you have what I always say to my students makes it so. So I can use I can use turtles. So uh, spotted turtles are a great example. Throughout their distribution, um, they're a small turtle that's black with the spots on them. And oh, I'm definitely working with Roger Toma. I saw that pop up. He's my mentor. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, and you 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 catch the little spotted turtle up where you're at in Connecticut got lots of yellow spots blah blah blah. when you come south to where i'm at in west virginia we only have a handful of populations and our spotted turtles are um barely spotted they might have eight spots total across their body so what if there was a climb there what you would see is we would have eight spots you would have let's say 20 spots up in connecticut And then if you made your way halfway down into southern New Jersey or eastern Pennsylvania or um, even parts of Maryland, if they had 10 spots, then what you have is this thing we call a climb because you are gradually going towards a different phenotype geographically. So what happens with the crayfish is you get into these stream systems, you pull the crayfish up and uh, they're they show a lot of what we call morphological plasticity, which is really fancy Mm -hmm. words for the claws are not the same in every river. So then you Mm -hmm. have to sit there and ask these questions to yourself, which is, is this a new species? Is this not a new species? Is this a random form of the phenotype of the species that we would see over in the drainage system next door? Uh, And so what I ended up having to do, and I didn't know I was going to have to do was learn how to name species and that was not something that i intended on doing what's really ironic about this is one of the reasons why i got out of herpetology is when um i was getting my master's degree and i was looking at phd programs back in 2004 five there were basically two things you could get a phd in, in herpetology back then um that where you would be funded and you wouldn't be starving uh, and one of those things was Phylogenetics. So you're going to basically be the gene jockey that goes out into nature and catches 50 whatever frogs, salamanders, turtles, snakes, takes some tissue, brings it back, runs a DNA gel, and then makes a phylogenetic tree and says, new species. Um, and I didn't want to do that because I'm a classically trained ecologist and natural historian. And the, the gene tree peeps generating (laughs) cryptic species that you couldn't like you could tell apart with dna but you couldn't look at it and tell it apart right i came out of a lab where that was like blasphemy so the fact that i do you know that i had to go and describe species and do all that kind of stuff um now it's very interesting that i ended up being what i was what i didn't think i was gonna end up doing in the first, you know ultimately that's that's
1: really really funny that's really funny i think this is a good kind of segue into like the the idea of like lumpers versus splitters and i think mm-hmm. a lot of people <coughs> in our world in this turtle world will say like oh this is different it should be a different species or is this something special or or is this that or whatever and they they they're people who feel like and i think there's different situations like the european pond turtle is one where there's a whole bunch of different subspecies you can't tell most of them apart morphologically so then you're kind of stuck there you need to do uh, genetic work to know what what they actually are. Um, mm-hmm. And then sometimes I think the science lacks uh, sufficient sample sizes to, re- to really know. And uh, you know, maybe there's a paper and some people dispute it, but we're not really sure what, what actually is coming out of it or, or how widely accepted it is and how many animals even went into describing something. Uh, and I, like I know there's one where incubation temperatures can change the way they mm-hmm. look. Uh, Like, okay, great. So it looks like this species because the incubation temperature, like what is actually at play here? And it's really tough to know. And then there's this clinal situation as well, where you have a species that can, can, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but you know, you can have them at the top of the river system and then way down um, at the Southern part, they can look totally different. And when you go out there and you take those animals from both spots Mm -hmm. at the top and bottom, they're completely different morphologically and genetically. And you don't realize all of the steps and all the gradual changes all along the way that goes into that. I think Eastern painted or painted turtles are a good example. Like basically everything is an integrate zone with Mm -hmm. painted turtles. You pick one up, it looks like two of the subspecies, but like, so where (laughs) are the, where are the actual, you know, type specimens and And how much space do those type specimens actually make up? Because they're all just mixed up. And then there's people moving around and everything else. So sorry, going
2: on a little rant here. But I mean,
1: (laughs) your thoughts on the 12 things I just mentioned. Uh,
2: I think that we're actually in a really good time to be a taxonomist. uh, Because it took about 25 years for the old guard of taxonomy to accept that DNA is not going away. It also took 25 years for the DNA people to lose their arrogance and completely disregard everything that the old guard had done. And now we're kind of in this happy Goldilocks zone where um, there's a new species concept. It's been around for a decade, but it's definitely the, the, the concept that seems to be bearing the most weight across all taxa, crayfish, birds, snakes, turtles, whatever. And that's what we call the integrated species concept and what that concept does is basically you you use the best of ev- you use evidence from multiple lines so you have genetics you have geography you have morphology and you kind of look at what the whole picture's saying and once you have that you can move forward and, and we're good to go so that's what i know that's what we're doing in the crayfish world um i've, I've read a couple snake papers uh, recently, where I was like, "Okay, cool." Um, uh, you know, I, th- th- this integrated approach is starting to be used because the the reality is there's so many different lines of evidence, and and you, you like the genes. Let's talk about the genes for a second. For the longest time, when the gene approach showed up, a lot of people are like, "Oh my god, this is a game changer," and it kind of was a game changer for certain taxa. But for other groups of animals, it was not a game changer. And actually, my group, crayfishes, were one of those groups, the, the um, barcoding gene, this gene called cytochrome oxidase 1. Uh, it, it, with crawdads, made one species like 30. I mean, it was crazy how diverse this gene was. And the reason why it was being used is we use the genes when we're doing molecular taxonomy, That are going to be what we call evolutionarily conserved we want a gene that isn't going to mutate all the time so that if you get a little bit of mutation that little bit means something and that's why those genes were used now it's 2022 you know those studies were being done in 98 through 2005 now we can look at the whole freaking genome um and it took forever for us to do that with human beings i just found out that one of my colleagues with Crayfish looked at the uh, – figured out the genome of a crawdad in his genetics lab using college sophomores. Like, within a decade, just sit back. Because one thing I will say is that I know people get a little bit pissy about the taxonomy piece changing. Um, it has not changed yet. We have not seen the ends. <laughs> because uh, we're, now we're getting to the point where we can literally look at every single gene. You know, and, and so we point. don't have to choose and, and have that obje- subjectivity of which one are we going to use. Within the next decade, we're just going to look at the whole damn turtle. If you know what I'm yeah, saying, yeah, uh, and that'll I change mean, everything.
0: Right. I mean, Brad Schaefer at UCLA has been working on a lot of this stuff, as I recall, and like I'm I'm really looking forward to some of the things that you know come out of his project. Uh, I've gotten a chance to check out some of it and a lot of it ironically suggests maybe not ironically that you know some of the stuff the old the old guys used to do you know was completely accurate as well which is kind of which is really cool to think about too is is even though even now as we can like build the entire genome we can be like oh yeah the way they thought these pieces put together they were right um Uh, and obviously, I'm as interested in it for the map turtle stuff as anything because there's all you know, especially in there, there's always been this kind of groupers versus splitters thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, So I'm really looking forward to seeing some of those results and seeing how they blend with with what we know, with the morphology and and all these other things that kind of go into the taxonomy piece. I mean, in map turtles, you even have the fact that they've been isolated in separate drainage systems for how long and how long that's going to continue that you have to take into effect and into account and not just the genome and the appearance and all these other things. So like all those other factors are kind of cool to look at too.
2: Oh, cool. One hundred percent, and the old people—I love how would say the old people—but the originators <laughs> that were doing the taxonomy, um, you know, they're looking at morphology and what controls morphology: genes. So it does—it makes total sense that if you look at turtle A, turtle B, and you're like, "Well, these two are different morphologically," that then when you look at them genetically, that there might actually be something backing that because you know, genotype rules your phenotype. So.
1: I think um, the the trouble comes in where we were talking about like what happens over the entire range. Yes. And cause if that's missing, then it becomes really problematic. But then also what's the sample size? Because if you have five oh. over here and 12 over here and they look different, you're, you're leaving yourself open to, to not really knowing exactly what's happening in either population. Yes. That, that's, that's what I see in some of the turtle stuff, especially with some of the rare stuff. I mean, unfortunately with some of these species we're, we're, we're trying to figure out you know, the taxonomy and where things fit together when they're already extinct in the wild or critically mm-hmm. endangered and that sort of thing when there's already been this huge effect by humans on these populations, yeah. which is where you know, the turtles really differ from some of the other vertebrates and, and reptiles as well, um, in, just in terms of their situation and, and how important this stuff is, but also how messed up and convoluted and, <laughs> and uh, confusing everything can end up being yeah so yeah it's it's cool but yeah chris you know you know where where my head's at always (laughs) talk about those asian box turtles always i don't stop thinking about those yep um zach can you tell us a little bit about your program and what you're doing at west liberty Sure.
2: so i teach at a small liberal arts school in northern west virginia um we it is basically where we're located is the northern panhandle. So West Virginia has an eastern panhandle, and then this little part that sticks up between PA and Ohio, and that's where uh, my university is. And that's also where I went to school. I grew up here. I, I actually teach at the in the building I got my undergrad degree in, which is pretty awesome. Um, but uh, when <clears throat> when I went back to West Lib to, to teach, uh, I slowly but surely built a small environmental program there uh, and I had my crayfish research lab and we were growing and hired a professor that I that was one of my friends uh, there's a local zoo at in Wheeling West Virginia called Ogilvy Good Zoo and during college I worked at the zoo and then this guy named Joe Greathouse worked at the zoo with me and so he went off and got a PhD he studied um, hellbenders And I wanted to bring him on because I study crayfish. He studies hellbenders. We could get a freshwater conservation thing going. And he had been in AZA forever. Like zoos were his life. Uh, And so when I brought, when we got him hired as a prof, he started talking about this thing called a zoo science major. And I was like, well, what the hell is that? Like, that sounds interesting. And basically the idea is that you, while you're getting your undergrad, get all the experience you need to get a job in in aza and uh, we all know like it's not a secret that keeper jobs in aza do not pay that great um but what this basically gets you ready for is kind of that lead keeper assistant curator curator gig uh because you have to have the knowledge you have to have the experience and you have to know aza and so that's basically what this would this degree would do so back in 2015 we started putting this whole thing together. And the idea initially was that I was gonna run the ecology side and Dr. Greathouse was gonna run the zoo side side. And lo and behold, he was too good at what he did uh, as a zoo guy. And so he came back home, we got the major set up, we got the relationship with Ogilby going down. And then he got offered the director's job for Ogilvy Good Zoo and bounced. And they are like, oh, by the way, Zach, you're in charge of zoo science. I was like, excuse me? What the hell? (laughs) I don't know. I I was a part-time keeper with goats when I was an undergrad. I I, I cannot be managing this major. Um, But I'm also the kind of guy that likes a challenge. I really like to jump off of hypothetical ledges and have absolutely no idea how I'm going to land, but I'll figure it out while I'm falling. And I knew that this was going to be a good thing for the school, so... I thought what the hell i'll give it a go so in 2016 we started this thing and what was really interesting is i told all the people that i worked with like we're not going to half-ass this this is not going to be done where they go do an internship at a zoo and that's it like we have to have a zoo here and so <laughs> what we ended up doing is got our own animal collection and so i was into herps and herpeticulture culture and all that all through college all the way up until a, about the time my son was born in 2008, and then I got out um, because I was getting my PhD. I had a child. I did not have time to do be, give the animals justice. And this was crazy. Like this was literally like somebody that has you know kicked their cocaine habit, and then their boss comes up to them and goes, "Hey, you want some?" Like, <laughs> literally, that was what God. this was like. So oh I basically had the keys of the kingdom, and I built this herpetoculture laboratory uh, now. And we, in 2016, had a corn snake that I, had, I always had at least one animal through that whole period of time. Um, he lived in the zoology lab. And uh, as of a month ago, we have 370 animals at the university. And all major lineages of reptiles and amphibians are covered. Minus we don't have a tuatara, so there you go. Uh, but we have plenty of turtles. Um, we have crocodilian, uh, smooth fronted caiman, and then lizard, snakes, salamanders, frogs, toads, hylids. You know, the whole kit caboodle. And then everything that we have there, I started like networking with curators at zoos because I wanted to make sure we set things up right. Um, and then as you can see, I had I brought it home with me. So now I have the animal collection here and then my house actually serves as the quarantine for the zoo side collection because we, uh, anybody that's listened to me on podcasts has heard about our crypto scare. So I just put so, everything out in the garage, but so no, it's the, been crazy.
0: <laughs> that little comment right there gives us a perfect segue to one of the questions that was asked. Yeah, you said your house is the, is the quarantine <laughs> environment. And so what we had a question already. So what's in some of those things that are behind you that we uh-huh. can see in the racks and on the other side.
2: Okay. So, uh, let's see. Well, back here, those are rocko um, Those are uh, what's in there? Those are some crested geckos that I raised. It, what's funny about those is those are actually um, bioactive vivs, so they're fully planted and all that. Nice. And I love nice. the geckos. I love the plants just as much. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's what's living back there. And then in the rack over there, um, the top of it has a bunch of. Um, Madagascar colubrids. what are those things? Madagascar Cat-Eyed Snakes. Uh, and then the bottom are all Dipsatids. So I'm writing a book on false water cobras and musaranas and baron's Racers. And that rack has a bunch of these really weird little Colubrids. Um, uh, they don't have an easy name. Um, postilla gyrus I think they're called Yellow-Bellied Lyophis. They're like little garter snakes from South America. Uh, and then i have a you can't see it here, here like that but there's like a bank of pvc enclosures that make up the wall and so that false water cobras and then the king snakes and the rhodia. so yeah lots of stuff in here lots of stuff are
1: you using mm-hmm. racks for for all ages or just for certain life stages
2: i use racks for snakes that don't do well in pvcs so i i like naturalistic enclosures just because i like to see the animals Um, but I will be the first one to admit there are definitely animals that when you put them in these enclosures and they're exposed and I come in here, they freak out and they, they go off food and they don't do well. So, uh, everything that's in a rack is either growing up to ultimately go into the PVCs or literally just want to be in the damn rack. So like the Madagascar cat-eyed snakes are a great example. Um, I had them in the bank of enclosures right here and, uh, they just stopped eating and so I thought, okay, I'll put you back in the rack. And then they ate, and then I put them back into the enclosures, and they stopped eating, so they're in the rack uh, forever. Interesting. But, but I, I have don't have some theories. Go ahead. Go for it. Oh, I I, was... I, have, I don't have problems with racks. Um, yeah. Uh, it, you, can, you can do animals justice in racks. You're not going to be providing them light, and there's absolutely a potential issue there, and I won't negate that. Uh, but for things that are crepuscular or extremely nocturnal or Fissorial. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I almost feel like my experience has been that they've done better in that system.
1: So, That's a big one on our end with the with the turtle stuff. A lot of species early on are fossorial or like their biggest I wonder about cortisol or cor- corticosterone levels or whatever, yeah. like that they're they they spend their entire lives for the first two, three, four years completely hidden under leaf litter, yeah. under dirt. And, you know, we take them and then the first thing someone will tell you when you're trying to set them up is you need to have UVB and then you set them up in these like bright boxes, this glass case of emotion and they're supposed yes. to do well. Like that's not, that's, I, I worry about that a lot. And that's, I actually use racks myself for, for mm-hmm. small, for small box turtles and other like terrestrial turtles when they're small mm-hmm. and a few pond turtle species as well that aren't like avid baskers at, at that young yeah. stage. Um, you know, I think a, a species that wants to bask is one thing, but one that wants to hide is a, is a completely different thing, especially at that life stage. So that's what I was asking. I also wanted to ask, so you're talking about herpeticulture, and for anyone who hasn't heard yeah. that term, I'm sure most of the people who are listening have, but that's the difference. herpetology and herpeticulture is the difference between uh, really uh, academia and a hobby. And, uh, the fact that you actually have, now, do you have courses in? Yes. Herpetoculture, or do you actually have a major in herpetoculture, and what level is that
2: major? We, we don't have a major. Okay, that was my uh, understanding, with, and then I got to... With gotta the zoo science major, though, um, and we have a graduate degree. Uh, we're the only... we are, I can't say this, and we're very proud of this. We're the only zoo science graduate degree um, in the world that we know of. There's no other one, and it's completely online. Shallow plug. Uh, Anyway, make the plug, make the plug, (laughs) because this is a
1: new audience who may not have heard you before. And it's super duper cool.
2: But uh, we offer courses in in what are called tetrapods. So all the animals that have legs that are vertebrates are collectively known to people like me as the tetrapoda. So that includes birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and then the, the fish are the other group of vertebrates. And with zoos, those are the main groups that people uh work with and they're kept in zoos and then if you have the fish obviously that's aquarium science that's a whole other can of work so we offer a semester-long course for the undergrads and the grad students in mammology um ornithology and herpetology so i teach the herpetology class and the way that those classes work is the lecture course is exactly what you'd get anywhere in the country it's evolution biology um taxonomy systematics ecology behavior like all that kind of good old school applied natural history and the lab is where things differ so a traditional ology class you would usually learn to field id the animals that live near you so like i took herpetology twice i took it in undergrad and i took it in grad school and both times i learned the reptiles and amphibians of west virginia so in lab with a bunch of dead herps. with our class um or with my class we don't do that. We do herpeticulture in lab. So, like, I have a lab, it's a 15 week course. So, there is a four hour lecture on lights. And then there's a four hour lecture on cages. There's a four hour really cool. lecture on substrate types. And there's a four hour lecture on um, habitat heterogeneity. So, like, naturalistic oh, no. versus bioactive versus sterile. When, it, when do you use which? Uh, what's the difference between naturalistic and bioactive? uh you know how do you, how do you use all this stuff we do a veterinary thing um and then there's dedicated lectures specific to the herpetoculture of turtles, herpetoculture of salamanders, herpetoculture of frogs so it's it's intense and the grad class is like the the undergrad class on steroids so with the grad class what I'm doing it's actually my favorite class I've ever taught um is you do all that same stuff but we basically read three journal articles a week on a on a topic and then there's a forum question and then you have to respond to the forum uh with these journal articles and then you have to respond to three of your classmates responses and it's it's really it's kind of fun because right now i would say about 50 percent of the grad students are herp nerds so they're like this is a class. I'm doing this for a class. Like they're right. They're like in shock. And then there's like, I want to study bunnies. Like there's mammal people in there too. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of fun to see the like whole interactions. And the beginning of the class, the the students are like, "There's this is too much work." Um, I usually have to shut down a coup, uh, and <laughs> I, I basically say, you, "You have to do it." And what's really funny is. About three weeks in, I've done this class now three times, and everybody's into it. They're nerding out. It's it's kind of a fun environment because you learn how to debate, not flame. So, like, when you go on social media and people were like, well, I keep my turtle this way. And then someone's like, well, that's Mm -hmm. the wrong way. You learn how to, in this course, be like, well, I keep my turtle this way. And then somebody says, well, I keep my turtle this way. And then you try to communicate to ultimately figure out how to keep the turtle the best way. So that's another part of the class is just, you know, doing that. But I'm really, really big. I'm a massive proponent on, you got to understand the natural history of the animal before you can keep it. Uh, So what I do is I'll find like the life history of the Eastern box turtle and make people read this monograph from like 1890 or 1920. Uh, and then I'll say, okay, you've read the paper. Now, how would that change your keeping strategy? Um, or I'll ask a specific question. So, like, you read the paper, and then I'll be like, all right. So, what's the lighting regime need to be for this turtle? And how is that going to impact its breeding? You know. So I, I'll pick like a specific facet. So I'm just trying to get people to think, um, because I I learned in my second coming as a herpeticulture person that. Before when I was just doing the stamp collecting, I, when I was in college, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want yeah. that. There was no meaning behind it. Now, you know, a lot of my snakes are little and brown. And people would look at them and be like, Why don't you keep that? You know, well, the biology of this thing is phenomenal. You know, so right. that's what you know, that that's that's the driver now. So but no, the the um the program's working. Our undergrads are getting hired. We were scared to death with COVID. <laughs> because yeah. uh, the zoo world took a huge hit um, because zoos are gate-driven. So when yeah. you shut down people going, you're going to have to lay off people. And we thought that the job market was going to get saturated with all these keepers that had all this experience. And uh, what we've actually found is that our students are getting jobs fairly. Like the ones that put in the time and do it right, are they're not having to, to worry and they're getting like, really freaking badass job like some of the jobs my kids have gotten i'm like well i want that job <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so uh no it's definitely working in the grad program um the problem we have with the grad program is the grad students are getting employed in zoos while they're pursuing their degree because they're in the degree because the zoo's happy they're going to have a graduate degree but then they get a job, and they're like, "Well, I got the job now, so I have to like do everything shy of threatening them within an inch of their life to get them to finish." <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, it's a good
1: problem to have, right? Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. but like we're at a hundred percent employment rate, so you can't with the graduate students. Every single grad student who was applied to AZA has gotten a job, <clears throat> so you can't beat that statistic.
1: That's really awesome. That's a tough yeah. rocket to get in as well. Like. Mm-hmm. I mean the the, yeah, it's competitive. Of the of the couple Aza uh, institutions here in Connecticut. Like a lot of people who I know are just you know volunteer for ten years if you want to yeah. get a job in 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 the zoological right. field. Yeah, that's really that. Thanks, Chris. You're right. That's really yeah. cool. Took the words out of my mouth. So, <clears throat> wow. Uh, and I mean, you're you're looking for students as well. So people are. interested, oh, yeah. Right. So you make the plug like.
2: This I'm so always cool. looking I, for students.
1: Like um, online for, for the graduate stuff. And I mean, that's so cool. Uh, yes. Someone just asked, how
2: many students yes, graduate each year
1: in the zoo program?
2: Yeah, uh, we're, I see how many students graduate each year. We're, we're averaging somewhere between 20 and 30. And what happens with this major is a lot of, uh, for the undergraduate degree, a lot of people think they want to work in a zoo and they have no experience with animal husbandry and anybody that has buku experience with animal husbandry knows that you are cleaning poop you are going to smell (laughs) you are getting a degree to get um (laughs) you're getting a degree to get salmonella it's going to happen so like (laughs) um uh, but what happened what we realized is about 30 to 40% of the undergrads about the end of their sophomore year are like, well, I don't want to do this, but I want to do conservation. So that's actually where my like background is. I am a conservation biologist. So we we created a track in the major so that at the end of your sophomore year, you have to declare you're either going to be a zoo science major or you're going to be an applied conservation major. And you can you don't lose any time. It's a very smooth pivot and then you're just basically getting a degree in field biology is what it boils down to. So, um, uh, and what's really cool is we've been able to like show the students how captive husbandry and field biology are intimately linked with things like head starting and repatriation yeah. and yeah, that's, purchasing that's awesome. habitat and all that kind of good stuff. Right. Um, yeah, right, yeah,
0: You know, and coming from the educational field, like to be able to design your program where they can make that turn and yeah. not have to go back and redo right. stuff or whatever. That's that's what we call quality design in mm-hmm. education. And like mm-hmm. that, that's something that like we talk about, like even in our high school is, you know, okay, so a kid was – advanced in seventh grade math, but then they struggled a little bit back in eighth grade. How do we give them, uh, how do we let them, you know, parachute down a little bit or somebody was, you know, on level in seventh grade, but all of a sudden they've sped up. How do we allow them to, to, to move back up and make that change without having to necessarily like just suffer behind or any other thing. So like, it's really cool to see that, that kind of intentionality in the design program so that you can really get kids interested And even send them off in a slightly different direction without having to feel like they they need to backtrack and just shell out some more dough. So that's really cool. No.
2: One of the nice things about my being at a small liberal arts school is that we can pivot. Yeah. And and there's bureaucracy. I am not saying there's no. Oh, yeah. But we're kind of able to bully the bureaucracy, if that makes sense. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the zoo science major has been so successful um it's the thir- it's either the second or the third um, largest major on campus right now so uh, wow because that's incredible. of our numbers the, yeah the upper administration has basically been like okay don't know a damn thing about all those animals over there so we're just going to let those people do what they're going to do right uh, and that's yeah, been but, I mean, nice
1: are, do you find are you pulling people from across the country at this yes. point Be- yeah because they're just, mm-hmm. like that's the yeah. really cool part i mean how many majors are doing that at west liberty university right yeah
2: yeah. Oh, well, we're the only one, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. the only awesome. one. Um, that has uh, 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 our dental hygiene is kinda, but um, the the biggest issue that we have with the major is the simple fact that people don't know it exists. Um, yeah. Because when you're at a small school, you don't have the marketing budget that you would have yeah. at a large university, and that's why that was also one of the reasons why I did the podcast and I love go it. on every podcast I can go yeah. on because. <laughs> I know where my target audience is. It's Yeah. You know, I I, I yeah. am the target audience. So I just basically sit back and think, well, "What am I, you know, what am I consuming?" Right. And it's totally done it. And hey, if it gets a bunch of reptile people that I get to teach, damn. <laughs> I'm so upset that that's the dominant. Uh, I love that. You know, that interest. you're the target audience. So, it's like mm-hmm. you're going
1: to a holiday party and there's going to be a Yankee swap or like Dirty Rotten Santa or or White <laughs> Elephant or whatever that gets called. You it's smart to don't re-gift a candle that you didn't yes. want. It's smart to bring something you want because then people are also going to want that. But I think that's yeah. so funny. Like this that's who you are uh, and and you know the people that you're trying to to attract are are, are the same. Yes. Uh, is 72 years old too old to start <laughs> Heck no! No way! Why not? I saw I saw an article with a guy who was seventy two who was playing college <laughs> basketball and shooting free throws. Yeah, <laughs> let's do that. it! You could definitely do college herpetoculture and mm-hmm. and zoo science if you can yep. if you can make yeah. it on the basketball team.
0: Yeah, we had a woman that age in our in our college choir. Uh, nice. Where I went to school, she was a uh, you know uh, she was just t- picking along courses in her you know sixties and seventies and just kept singing in the in the you know the not auditioned choir, but the other choir just every you know every semester you know that was one of the things she did.
1: <laughs> I love that. I, I love how you said the non auditioned choir. You got to make sure keep right. Everything. Well,
0: yeah. Well, you know they you didn't have to audition for the college one either. So like anybody could join it. And so she did, it was, you know, a thing she did. So that's cool. Yeah.
2: Nice.
1: Ryan says his girlfriend has lots of coworkers showing up thinking they're going to just cuddle kittens and puppies as vet assistants.
2: Oh yeah. I feel your pain. I feel your pain. We call them bunny huggers. Right. And and, and the stories that I can tell. So one fun one is we had the first year, first semester in, um, we had this girl, and she bailed out of the major and was like just really angry one day we didn't know what the hell was going on and then the next day somebody from hr like reached out to me and was like hey we got to talk about what you're doing with those rats i was like what do you mean what am i doing with the rats i don't know what you're talking about i don't do anything with the rats she's like well you're drowning the rats and the kids don't like that like we can't be drowning rats that's cruel it's like we're thawing them out. They're frozen. This girl thought that we had these rats somewhere on campus and that I was driving up in the morning and just drowning rats by like the tens every single day. And I was like, No. Like, so there's, there's there's a there's a very interesting dynamic when you have a major like this of so you get we get students who literally like eat, breathe, sleep, Aviculture, um, or herpeticulture, or tropical fish. And they know everything coming in. I mean, they're like rock stars. And then we get other students that have watched Animal Planet, the zoo shows, and, you know, think that all they do is that. And there's nothing wrong with those students. One of the Some of the absolute best kids we've had are those people. And it's amazing to be in a position to, like, teach them how to do all this and watch them, you know, start naive and end up being these, Wickedly experienced, wonderful future conservationist. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. But it's right. been a, the, there have been things with this major that I was not prepared for <laughs> at all. <laughs> And uh, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been a massive learning experience. I can absolutely say that.
0: So uh, I think there's a question that's been asked that ties into this a little bit. Um, uh, He says, uh, I'm sure Zach knows about graphic care sheets floating around on social media, Facebook groups. They claim here is the only way to care for a particular animal. Do these discussions discussions, uh, show up in your classes, and, and what are they like?
2: They absolutely do. And we actually have an activity in the herpetoculture class, which we basically – I tell them to go out and find the, the care sheet. And then we t- I tell them to then go out and find the journal articles that discredit the care sheet. So I do nice. an I like it. exercise, and there's more than one way to skin the cat. Yeah, um, And, and I, because that's one of the things that I want to make. If I have any Im- impact on herpetoculture, I just want people – to not do the care sheet thing and and be so defiant, like not defiant, but um, to honor it with like their life and blood. Like so rigid there's yeah. Rigid. That's it. Because I've I've heard this on every podcast. When you get experienced people, the way that I keep things in West Virginia is going to be totally different than the way you do it in Florida, which is totally different than the way you do it in Montana, which is different than how you do it in Holland because the environments are different. So if you get that little care sheet and that's what you're basing everything off of, it should be, I teach the students, it's a foundation, Um, uh, but it's not like the end all be all Bible of care. Right, yeah. (laughs) I
0: think you know one of the things I think about when it with it like when, when we've written some care sheets, you know, at the Turtle Room. One of the things I think about them is it's kind of like what do the principles look like? You don't need to yeah. detail the habitat should be eight by four with X, you know, like the care sheet should be focused on principles of needs and all these other things, and then leave it open to some interpretation of of how that happens in wherever you happen to be. Because like you said. Um, mm-hmm. Like those of us in the Northeast, we learn how to do some more stuff inside that you can do outside in Florida. Those folks in Florida, they get stumped on certain things because they can't all of a sudden keep them outside because it's either too hot or whatever else in Florida. And they're like, I don't know how to do anything inside. And so like we gain different areas of expertise just based on our region as well.
1: Yeah, 100%. No, that was something the- I had to realize. I was I really struggled with it. Like, I'm gonna retire and move to Florida, or I'm gonna move to Florida as soon as I can because then I can keep so many other things. But there are a lot of species that actually do really, really well in a cooler climate. Whether that means you have a basement that naturally gets into the 50s in the winter, or yep. you know, you have animals that really do well outside here year round, which is crazy to think, but they are out there and finding the right species for you.
2: Uh, go ahead, Zach. No. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. I, I've. It's funny when I got back into this because I'm a snake guy. I had all these dream species that I wanted to keep when I was in college, and so I thought, okay, well, we're going to do this. And what's? It's funny. I've gone like full circle, and now with the personal collection here, it's just a whole bunch of freaking king snakes. Like, that <laughs> 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 you throw the mouse in, they eat it. But I like the phenotypic yeah. plasticity, and I like the evolutionary story there, and the locality stuff's really cool to me so yeah i did see a question that i wanted to talk about i don't know how to go down in the chat but somebody asked me what i thought about the private sector
1: yeah Um, that was andrew yeah who also made fun of my vest, by the way thank you yes i got i I got to work late today what i wore
2: is what i got (laughs) i'm embarrassed i look like aladdin yeah i like the vat i am not i am not the guy that poo poo's the private sector there are People in the private sector obviously know there's aspects of the private sector that we just don't want to talk about. But there's definitely, I think that there's a lot of potential for the private sector to do a lot of good. Um, uh, it's just getting to the point where we're allowed to do it, if that makes sense. Um, I, What's fun about my position is I work in academia as a professor. And then with the crayfish, I work with fish and wildlife. I'm a species expert for two endangered species. So I am hip deep, ear deep in the Endangered Species Act at the federal level all the time. It's never ending. And then I work at state level. And what's fun is in those circles, I'm the crayfish guy that works with snakes. And I've heard, you know, I've brought up yeah. snakes and regulations and why do you do what you do and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I will, you know, people call me naive for this, but I, I I, think that there is a way to kind of reach the happy middle land where everybody can kind of have their purpose. And I, I do have to say that I think the turtle people are the best at it because um, snake people are, not to use generalities, but we just have a tendency to be very angry. So the second that <laughs> someone tries to take something away, there's yelling and screaming and there's no diplomacy. But um yeah, I, I definitely think that the private sector has its purpose. Um, I think that's
1: actually when I when I first had uh, my my man crush for you grew at, for at, at the first moment. Sorry, oh. that's totally inappropriate, and weird, but yeah. like,
0: just being honest, it's okay, man. But <laughs> it is. It's Monday, Man Crush yep. Monday, right? That's a, it's I'm a sorry. social it media this, thing,
1: right? But I, I, you were on a podcast and you mentioned that you felt like the turtle group in in terms of herpetoculture that the turtle people did the best job of kind of trying to, to put effort into and branch out towards some sort of semblance of conservation, which we all know that like true conservation is, is like a a unicorn or a leprechaun. It's not really something Mm -hmm. that you see that often, but, uh, especially coming from the, from the herpetoculture side, but, but we try it a lot and we at least get into like preservation and, and keeping species for the right reasons and, and all that sort of stuff. So that was one yeah. of the first things I heard you say where I was like, wow, like this guy, yeah, he's he he loves snakes, he loves crayfish, but he's got a really good idea of everything if he also is, is into the turtles and the other stuff, which no. I thought was really cool
2: and unique. Yeah, and, and I'm like, even with the university, I'm trying to get, In on head-starting programs, and I want to use our space because we have a budget. And you know, it would be an amazing opportunity to teach my students how to raise things that are ultimately going back. And you know, we can support that. But it's been it's been such a climb uphill to get anybody to commit. But I will say this: you know, even me as the endangered crayfish guy. That, that helped get these two animals listed as a species expert when they were listed that the, the recovery plan that came out for these animals said there were two things we had to do to get them off the endangered species list. We had to restore streams and we had to rear them in human care. And uh, I already knew how to rear them in human care because it's really easy. They, they mate, the uh, females retain a sperm capsule and spermatophore. And then they basically overwinter with that in the spring, it warms up. They fertilize their eggs. They got eggs. So I, and then you got maximum heterogeneity too, because they have multiple baby daddies. So I've been trying to get fish and wildlife to let us do this. And just so people know, it's not just hobbyists that get shut down, uh, because I have to do jump through so many hoops to prove that we're not going to be causing take, which is killing the crayfish. And we have to use surrogates. And then we use the surrogate species and we show and we get to like the final point. I'm like, all right, yes, they're finally gonna give us the permission. And then we get hit with, well, have you ever done it with the target taxa? I'm like, well, you didn't let me do it with the target taxa. Well, we need to go back to the beginning and now slowly do it with the target taxa. So conservation, it's a slow crawl. And, you know, it, it unfortunately, it needs to be a sprint. And you're looking at a guy that despises bureaucracy. I hate it, I loathe it because it's what leads to extinction but um uh, at the same time uh, i think the private sector oftentimes thinks that there's a target on their backs and that they're being discredited and and they don't have any um say and in reality the academics of the world have the exact same target on their back and i don't think people realize that
1: that's really interesting
2: and really valuable to know yeah, wow. like I have a building that we're building. I got a big grant to build a, a crayfish building and um, aquatic conservation center. And what's interesting is the, the the building's being built because Fish and Wildlife doesn't have anybody that can rear these crayfish because they're all they don't want to kill them. So I got a building to rear the crayfish, but it's going to take a year to build the building. And then when the building is built, I then have to apply for the permit to put the crayfish in the building, which is going to take another year and a half. So like right now, two and a half years from rearing a single crayfish in there. Meanwhile, the streams are being polluted with coal waste in southern West Virginia as we speak. Right. So of course, you know. And where are we going to put the ARC population? So like all these things we talk about, you know, I, I sit back and I, I, I hear the conversations, and I, I just want people to realize that it's that's just part of the process. Zoos have to right. go through the same thing. Yep. Um. So but the turtle people y'all did a great job with convincing people that it was worth, um, you know, you guys doing what you do with the wood turtles and spotted turtles and diamondbacks and all that kind of awesome yeah. stuff.
1: It's a challenge. It's like in my home mm-hmm. state, it's much, uh, much more of a challenge. So the good thing about being kind of a larger organization now with, with a larger scope and reach, I guess, is that, yeah you can kind of figure out where are our significant players on the biology uh you know the 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 field work side of things and then where are the states that are willing to work as yes. well because every single one is totally different and if you find yourself in one of those states where people aren't willing to really let you be creative and and try to help out or come up with something then it is what it is yeah. Uh, uh, last time you and I spoke on the phone, it was a while ago now, but yeah. but we spoke on the phone and at that time you were interested in potentially taking some turtles into your project. Now, turtles yeah. aren't the easiest thing to keep. Are you still interested in that? Well, we're totally interested.
2: When, okay. when this building's built, I have an extra aquatic life lab. That's what it's called. Because I didn't want it, I wanted it to have reptiles, amphibians, and turtles. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm currently... Talking with the West Virginia DNR about some things, um, I don't know where that's ultimately going to pan out. But they're wonderful people. I, I can say that yeah. our non-game people are good. Uh, but I'm, I've tried to get in with PA and you know yeah. all that kind of stuff. So but takes, no, we're always willing. Best. Yeah, yeah, that's we, that's we awesome. can raise things. That's and great. We to have know. a budget. We have a budget to they cover food. So I love it. So
1: yeah, we we look forward yeah. to partnering with you as well. Like however we can. Yep. If you if you want a guest lecture to talk about turtles with your group, just sure. Done deal. let me know. Mm-hmm. I got really excited when you were talking about um, her pediculture of turtles or or however you, you phrase it. Uh, yep. and yeah, and, and if anyone has something cool that you'd want to see go towards education, I mean this can actually go to the new facility there. Yeah. And actually be a part of that education for students who will be you know doing research and right i mean like your your grad students oh yeah are they publishing papers and things like this on this sort of absolutely
2: um in fact give us an
1: example of like a cool one
2: sure um (coughs) we actually had one accepted today (laughs) so awesome congratulations um, yeah my uh graduate student michelle williams uh so one of the things that i really have gotten into is reptile cognition so uh these things are not little androids running around you know they they Definitely, are associative learners and all that kind of good stuff. And so we did target training with um, false water cobras, uh, which are not real cobras. In case we don't have snake people here, <laughs> I wouldn't do that with a grad student. Um, but uh, <laughs> but we were able to show that they it, that they could basically learn a target and learn what the target meant in as little as eight sessions. And so we did this for zoos because you know you don't want to necessarily go in grab the snake and have it bite you. If we do this technique that Michelle developed, you can present the target, move the animal to a shift box. It willfully goes in the shift box, gets rewarded, um, <clears throat> and then you, you can go from there. So that's that's one. Uh, we have another paper we submitted last week, which was... Um, so corticosterones in poop, that's a way to uh, non-invasively test for stress in reptiles and amphibians.
1: Mm-hmm. So like
2: when you go into a blood draw, they get stressed, and then that's going to end up in the blood when you pull it out and so you end up not really knowing whether the animal is permanently stressed or not and there was some debate with um squamates uh that the mammals they were eating were stressed that corticosterone was passed through the food into them and so they were then (coughs) pooping out stress hormones that were not necessarily their stress hormones so i had a graduate student uh, joys of being a graduate student take snake poop cook it in an oven get all the moisture out of it and then we ground it with a mortar and pestle and then shook it through some sieves and got this like pure fecal powder Um, and then the bones and the hair and everything and we did um, corticosterone levels of the powder and then corticosterone levels of just a normal poop Uh, and we were able to show that if you do that extra step and get the poo uh, you you get lower quart levels so basically it kind of demonstrated that if you add this one step you can actually get a more um, a, a a court level that is probably more reflective of the actuality that's going on there. Right. But then I have so others. Cool. No, I have other students though. So um, many people might know Lucas Lee. Uh, Lucas Lee is in. He's part of the NPR group. He does Carpets and Coffee that podcast, and he okay. heard me on a podcast and um, came on to be my graduate student. And he loves Australian pythons. Like that's his jam. And we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for his thesis, and it was COVID times. And uh, he said to me – he doesn't know what he did. He, he messaged me over Messenger, what if I just wrote a book on Wilma's for my thesis? Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, <laughs> what if you write a book on Wilma's? So now Lucas, for his thesis, is going to be the lead author on the complete – um, Woma Python, the complete series from Eco. Yep. 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 So he's doing the natural history, the evolution, and captive husbandry. That's for his thesis. And then we're gonna take those chapters, and then um, Nick Mutton and Justin Jewelland, Dr. Jewellander, and I are gonna be on it as well. But like that's the kind of thing we can do with his graduate degree. So right. If there are turtle projects that you have the data sitting there, and you've always needed that one final oomph step, that's where grad students are wonderful creatures because you can give them the data and they have to like, you have to get that final report, document, paper, pub, book. Um, now, obviously the kid ends up being the lead author on it because they do all the work, but uh, it just kind of helps everyone. And that was kind of my goal with the grad degree um, was I thought that this was a great way to, to kind of segue Really dedicated keepers on the private sector into the world of academia, and get them into Aza, and then you have somebody who's literally a keeper, an academic, and an Aza, and you kind of have right. a trifecta there. And the more and, of those people we have, the better. Everybody. Like, yeah,
0: yeah, especially for research on keeping, you know, various different parts of the the as opposed to just you know, kind of the ecology or biology too.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's plenty of, of cool stuff. So I love the grad program. It's um, I, I listened to this guy named Warren Booth, Dr. Booth. He's a professor at, in Oklahoma. And he wants, he does a lot of parthenogenesis research with snakes, but you know, the thing that pays the bills with him is, are these um, is the genetics of pests. And he referred to it as hobby research. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what this is. Like, it's like how, how, I just think I'm the luckiest guy on earth that I get to do this every day. I'm right. Like, how did this happen?
1: It's so cool. And I love the idea yeah. of like the different branches that come off of the majors too, and how mm-hmm. I I envision these students who who kind of are growing up having an appreciation for people on other sides of the aisle, which is missing so much yeah. in traditional research. In the hobby side, which I hate the word hobby because to me, I hate this the is, word this, hobby too. This <laughs> is my lifestyle. This is my yep. life. It's not my livelihood. It doesn't pay my bills, but it is mm-hmm. why I wake up every morning. Like yep. I go to work because turtles exist. I have a yep. beautiful family, but I do it all because turtles exist. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, like a hobby is a. It, it's not. You it's not like that big that enough, enough of a word. Yeah, it's not big <laughs> enough of a word. Like I'm, you know, it's not but like cleaning nasty turtle water is not a hobby what you do like, for fun. i would not choose yeah. that as my hobby mm-hmm. this is my life's work because i think it's important so yeah. um yeah anyway i just think that's so cool like zach we should we should wrap up here i just like yep. i can't thank you enough i can't tell you how much of a fan of yours i am thank you know you. being able to hear your voice on our podcast makes me really happy because i know your voice so well now and like, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like when you meet someone from the radio and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what you look like. That's cool. I, li- I, I listen to you. you between the podcast you're on as a guest and then now your podcast, almost every week I'm listening to you. So it's it's awesome to have you on our show. I can't thank you enough for your time and I can't thank you enough for everything that you're doing for the animals of the world and the students of the world uh, oh, and nice. helping them yeah grow and, and change the world for the better. So this is yeah, that- this is just awesome.
0: That education piece is a big part of who we are. And so we're yeah.
1: mm-hmm.
0: excited to see what you're doing.
1: Don't put yourself <laughs> to sleep, Steve. Yeah. Come on. Excited
0: to see what you're doing here about uh, the work and uh, look forward to, you know, talking more in the future for
1: sure. Yeah, sure. Yep. I'll
2: come back on anytime you want me. I love it. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll make it an
1: annual thing. Just so okay, there you go. I'll, I'll keep notes through the whole year for like questions. <laughs> this <is a> question <laughs> for Zach, yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Th- thank you. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Episode uh, 86, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.
2: Thank you all.